0: This is a podcast from BBC Studios. BBC Studios. A commercial, a commercial subsidiary of the BBC.
1: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices When you look at mosses, it is like there's a little tiny forest right at your fingertips, a forest designed to harness the world's energies at the scale of a raindrop. This glistening, emerald green world where every little leaf is exquisitely shaped to interact with water,
3: to catch water
1: and hold water.
3: Today on the BBC Earth Podcast we're getting glimpses into brave new worlds. Advancing into unfamiliar territory and breaking new ground. We're pushing at the frontiers between us and the natural world. I'm Emily Knight, and in this first story, we're entering a world that's existed long before we were here and persists, quietly and unobtrusively, right under our noses. My
1: name is Robin Wall Kimmerer. I am a professor of plant ecology at the SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry. And I am a member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation and director of the Centre for Native Peoples in the Environment. Robin is our guide into the world of moss. A world of colour and texture, all guided by the play of light on the leaves. It's a habitat at once familiar, and completely alien. Soft as felt, shiny ribbons, dark and, and and woolly and a little bit wiry. I like to say bryoerythrophilum recurvirostum, fissidens grandifrons, tetraphis pellucida. All it takes to appreciate the beauty and the ecology of mosses is a little patience and getting down on your knees to look... People sometimes say, oh, well, there's moss on that log or there's moss on that rock, as if there was just one thing. It would be like looking at a forest and saying, there's tree. (laughs) There's so many different kinds of mosses, each with their own perfect little adaptations to the microclimates that they inhabit. Mosses are one of the most overlooked members of the plant kingdom, which is such a shame because while they're tiny little plants, they have a a really large ecological impact. And one of the things that fascinates me about mosses is their great age. Mosses were the first plants to colonize the land and it's estimated that that may have been as much as 470 million years ago. And that alone is an astonishing fact that they have been through every climate change that the earth has experienced. So there's something really quite remarkable about the way that they live their lives that have have given them that longevity and adaptability. When we think about where mosses live, we often think of moist places, of wet, shady, northern places, and and indeed, that's where they find their greatest expression. But mosses are also incredibly tolerant of drying out, tolerant of environmental stress. Because these little tiny plants, this forest only a centimeter tall, accomplishes everything it does without vascular tissue. No xylem or phloem to move water around. And so inevitably, a moss that's living on a rock or on a log in sunshine is eventually going to dry out. But they have this amazing ability, we say that they are poikilohydric, simply meaning that their moisture content is determined by the moisture content of the environment. So when it's wet, they're wet, and when they're wet, they photosynthesize. But when things dry out, they stop photosynthesizing, but they don't die. They're in a a state of something like suspended animation, just waiting for the rain to return and as soon as it does, as soon as they're wet, they begin the repair process from having dried out, and within as little as as 20 minutes, they're photosynthesizing again. So they're models of adaptability and resilience, and there are very few other beings on the planet that have this ability to dry out and not succumb. I really like to think about What do mosses do that have enabled this kind of adaptability and persistence through times of uncertainty? And that's the kind of guidance that we as as human people need right now. I hark back to our indigenous teachings that these plants are our teachers. I really think about the experiments that I do in the field as a kind of an interview with the mosses of not trying to wring information out of them, but to create situations where they can respond in a way that allows them to tell the story of their own being and their own relationship. It may take three or four years to see the colonization that's happening. If that's how long it takes, then that's how many times I have to go back and visit with them again what I think the mosses are teaching us is simplicity. Mosses purify air, they filter water, they engender biodiversity, um, they heal the land. Um, To me, those are models of what all of us need to be in these troubled times. And that's the way that I, I think about, with great gratitude, many of the Lessons that I've
3: had from mosses. Our planet harbours many secret corners. There are undiscovered worlds tucked away in the most unexpected places. While the miniature kingdom of moss is hidden in plain sight, some are much harder to find. But humans, or rather some humans, have a curious drive, an instinct that pulls them towards the dark and dangerous places that no human has ever gone before.
4: Well, I, you know, always wanted to be Captain Nemo as a child. I've always wanted to explore. And having lived right on the ocean in California, I always wanted to be the first person on the beach after a high tide to search for treasures. Hi, I'm Dr. Robert Ballard, and I'm president of the Ocean Exploration Trust. I was lucky to be involved in the first exploration of the largest mountain range on earth, the mid-ocean ridge. The earth is really, in my mind, an organism and it's alive. And one way of seeing that live activity is to go to where it creates its outer skin. And it creates its outer skin along this great undersea mountain range as the plates separate. You know, when you cut yourself with a knife, warm blood comes out and it coagulates and forms new tissue. Well, the Earth's the same way. If you pull the Earth's skin open, it bleeds its molten blood. And that molten blood rises up from within the asthenosphere beneath these, its skin and flows out and it creates new tissue, new ocean crust. So the theory went, but no one had actually been down to visually see it. In
3: 1977, when no one knew for sure what was on the bottom of the ocean, Robert and a team of geologists were 400 miles off the South American coast. They were investigating a geological mystery. If the mid-ocean ridge worked the way they thought it did, the seafloor should get warmer the closer you got to the fracture and that bubbling magma just beneath the surface. But when they sent down probes, that's not what they found.
4: It was hot, but it wasn't hot enough. Why was it wrong in this one place? We were looking for the missing heat.
3: They theorised that there might be vents in the ridge, hot springs, forcing the heat out over very small areas that their probes might have missed. The only way to find out was to go take a look.
4: These deep-diving vehicles are tiny. Plus, you have to work in very rugged terrain. You have to be in a highly maneuverable vehicle. And ours were like two meters in diameter, and you're going to stuff three people in there and a ton of equipment, so it's like working inside a Swiss watch. And when you initially make your die, when they throw you in the ocean... Uh, you flood your tanks and sink like a stone. And then we free fall down to the ocean floor. And so as you are free falling, you have windows and you're looking out and you, you go through this beautiful sunlit layer with lots of life in it. And then you go into eternal darkness. We found deep fissures where the crust had pulled apart Right above the magma chamber, water had gone down that crack, got heated by the magma chamber and came back up. And it was around 22 degrees Celsius. And so we found the missing heat. But what we didn't realise was its consequences.
3: Bob had no idea that on this geological expedition, he was going to make one of the greatest biological discoveries humans have ever made. A discovery that revolutionized our understanding of what life could be.
4: We had been taught in our biology class that all life on our planet was due to the warmth of the sun. Bundles of energy would be captured by chlorophyll of plants and then you would create the food chain all the way up to us. And so we always thought the ocean was sort of like a desert. It had life, but not a whole lot of life. And we found in a world, pretty much a desert world, like crossing the Sahara, we came onto an undersea oasis of life characterized by exotic creatures. tube worms that were two meters, three meters tall in giant thickets, like we even called it a rose garden. And giant clams that also looked more like beef than a clam. It was white or pink. It was red. And when you cut it open, it didn't have the internal organs of a clam. It had human-like blood in it, and it had no internal organs. And we went, this is bizarre. There was a bacterium living inside its body. It had convinced the clam to let it take over its body. It must have been a heck of a conversation way back when. But it said, look, if you let me live inside your body, I'll feed you but I need you to ingest poisonous hydrogen sulfide gas coming out of the undersea vents. I mean, hydrogen sulfide kills everything. And so it convinced this clam and these worms to ingest it and pass it on to them. And then it was able to oxidize it and set up a whole other food system we had no idea about. And this really blew open everything.
3: On the surface... All life derives its energy, one way or another, from the sun. We call the process photosynthesis, and it all begins with plants. But on these vents, it's a completely different process. Nothing to do with the sun. Called chemosynthesis. Bacteria converting minerals and chemicals in the water. Chemicals like hydrogen sulfide, which would kill almost anything on the surface, into the energy they need to live.
4: Our trip to the Galapagos, rift through a way our biology books, our chemistry books, everything. So it was a monumental discovery. A whole new system of life that could not only live in the deep oceans where we thought life began in the first place. So this sort of helped solve the mystery of how life got a foothold on this planet, but then gave us the probability of finding it elsewhere throughout the universe.
3: If life could emerge here, in one of the harshest environments our planet has to offer, In the cold and the dark, so far away from the sun, then maybe life could emerge in other extreme habitats, on other planets.
4: There are moons of our planet that have more water than our planet has. And in those moons, down in their deep oceans, are active volcanoes, and we're convinced we're going to find life within our own solar system and probably within the next couple decades. But it'll also open the door to the existence of life, and more likely intelligent life, throughout the universe. And the bottom line of these discoveries are, we're not alone.
3: Annex story takes place on New Zealand's North Island, on its longest navigable river, the Honganui. To the Maori people who've lived on the banks of the river for more than 700 years, it's regarded as part of the family, an ancestor.
0: For a very long, long time, our iwi, our tribe, have had an affiliation to the river, so much so that we have a tribal saying which says, ko te awa, ko te awa ko I am the river and the river is me. So the people and the river are seen as being inseparable e whakarongo mai ana. Uh, My name is Rawiri Tinido and I'm the deputy chair of Ngā Tangata or o Whanganui Trust. The trust is responsible for the health and well-being of the Whanganui River and our Whanganui people. I belong to our local iwi, our tribe Teotihonui Ati The Whanganui River is a major river in the North Island of Aotearoa, New Zealand. It flows from Mount Tongariro, winds its way northwest, and then it comes south and enters Te Moana kopoko Tāwhaki, the Tasman Ocean, at a place called Whanganui. The river is the home of our tribal people, Te Autihaunui a Pāparangi, but there are other iwi or tribes and other hapu or clusters of families that have interests in the Whanganui River. The river is entrenched in our history, it has ancestral names, it is viewed as an ancestor, um, but it also has been seen as a giver of life, a food source, as a place where our people pray, as a playground for our children. It was the way in which our people travelled, and so all things around our lives as a river people centred on the moods, the flows of the Whanganui River.
3: But the river, and therefore the people who live alongside it, have been under threat, ever since the European settlers arrived two centuries ago.
0: Since the 1800s, we've had a long-standing battle, I suppose, with those that came and colonised Aotearoa New Zealand.
3: While the Maori have always regarded the river... As an indivisible and living whole, with both physical presence and spiritual needs, the colonisers saw it as nothing more than an inanimate collection of useful materials. Life-giving water, muddy riverbed and fertile banks.
0: It sort of began with the clearing of our different rapids within the Whanganui River and... When you clear the rapids, you're affecting some of the supernatural beings that live in those rapids, and you're also affecting the nourishment of our people because a lot of the eel weirs were cleared at the same time, and that was to allow steamers to travel up and down the river. As time evolved, other threats faced our people, and these included um, the extraction of gravel, the taking of riparian lands for scenic preservation purposes and destroying all of those places that have quite special significance for us as river people.
3: So they decided to fight back. Living things have legal rights. There are laws in place to prevent them from being hurt or exploited. But how do you defend the rights of a piece of nature, like a mountain or a forest or a river?
0: It's often um, referred to as the longest-running litigation in the history of this country.
3: The fight began in the 1870s with a petition to Parliament, and the fight continued for years.
0: 1938 is when the first legal proceedings commenced.
3: Decades, over a century. It was a battle they were still fighting until very recently. In early 2017, after 140 years of negotiation, a settlement between the New Zealand Parliament and the Wananui people was finally agreed.
0: The signing of the deed of settlement happened at my own marae, which is like an ancestral um, gathering place. It must have rained about a whole week before the actual signing. Come the day of the signing, it was such a beautiful day, put on by our ancestors. And then the day after, it will rain for another week. So, um, you know, we always talk about that as as Māori people, looking at tohu, at um, the different signs that we get from our ancestors as it's manifested through the environment, and I think that the tohu for that day, uh, the sign for that day for us was that it was something that our tupuna would have been proud of.
3: The groundbreaking Te Tupua Act granted the Whanganui River personhood status. It possesses all the legal rights, powers, duties and liabilities of a person. And because all people deserve a voice and the right to legal representation, two guardians are appointed to act on behalf of the Whanganui River.
0: So we have the legal person, but we also have the human face and voice that speaks on behalf of the river itself. And in that regard, we have two poutupua. And so whenever there are issues concerning the Whanganui River... The tūpua act as the face and voice of the river. So that's quite a, a unique um, approach to settlement. But um, more importantly for us, um, there are these particular intrinsic values that are adhered to and recognised within this new legal framework, and we call that tupua te kawa.
3: For the first time in New Zealand's legal history, there's a framework which stems from the intrinsic spiritual values of an indigenous belief system. Before any legal rulings can be made, the rights of the river itself have to be considered as a living and indivisible entity whom the law is required to protect.
0: We live in a different time to our ancestors, and I'm not too sure whether they may have understood um, some of the legal ramifications of the settlement. However, I do believe that um, they lived tupua te kawa, the intrinsic values in their everyday lives. So even though the wording might be different today, I think that the intent is consistent with what our tupuna, what our ancestors um, would expect of us as those who have inherited this responsibility to our river.
3: For Rawiri, his part in this long process of restoring the river to its health is just part of a much longer story. A story which began with the efforts of his ancestors and which will continue with the help of future generations. For humans, come and go in the blink of an eye, but the river will outlast us all.
0: We're only sort of one part in this very long continuum of what it means to be a river people. It started with our tūpuna, with our ancestors who settled here. In some cases, our tūpuna, our ancestors believe that we actually sprang from the river. So we see the river as a connector, an enabler. It brings us together. And so we just are part of continuing that legacy.
3: Our final story today is about pushing at a different kind of frontier. A scientific one. A medical one. This is a story about two animals, a mother and daughter. They live in Olpajeta Conservancy in Kenya. The mother is called Najin and her feisty daughter is called Fatu. They're northern white rhinos. And the man who looks after them is James Mwenda.
2: I came and worked with Fatu first. She was the rhino that I was able to get close to for the very first time. We created that special bones Fatu will get excited when she sees us coming with supplements and she will jump and she would want to play with you. Najin is always very, very quiet. She doesn't get so excited about anything. They are lovely animals to work around. You know, they know us by our voices and our smell. When we call them, they will come to us. But on the other side, it's, it's really tragic and sad. And as an emotional toll, realising that you're just watching extinction with your eyes. And so it's a mixed feeling, I would say, being around them on a daily basis.
3: The thing is, these two aren't any old rhinos. They're the last. The last living northern white rhinos on planet Earth. Hunting, poaching and creeping habitat loss have seen the population dwindle from thousands to two.
2: These northern white rhinos suffered because of the conflict areas they come from. Southern Sudan, DRC Congo and Central African Republic. They are the most critically endangered species of rhinos now on the earth. We have only two females left.
3: With only two animals left, both female, this should be the end of the story for the northern white rhino but there's a chance it might not be. Human greed and violence has brought them to the brink, but perhaps human science can bring them back.
2: Scientists have been working on artificial reproductive technique and they have opted to use in vitro fertilization. They'll pick eggs from the two females and they will in the lab inseminate those eggs with semen from the different males they have and then they will be able to make an embryo.
3: There may be no Northern white rhino males still living, but there's quite a cache of frozen rhino sperm stored in various locations around the world. First, using a technique never before used on rhinos, scientists managed to harvest eggs from Najin and Fatu.
2: We were able to collect 10 eggs, five from each of the females. Only seven are viable to be inseminated with salmon.
3: And from those seven viable eggs, two were successfully fertilized.
2: So as we speak now, we have two embryos that are waiting to, to be transferred to the southern surrogate moms.
3: The final piece of the puzzle is yet to be figured out. Neither Najin nor Fatu are fertile enough to carry an embryo. But the scientists think that their close cousins, the southern white rhino, are similar enough to act as a surrogate.
2: The northern and the southern are subspecies of each other. So um, we can comfortably carry the pregnancy without any complication. What they are working on is the final thing, which is the embryo transfer to the southern surrogate mom. And that is what is giving them a bit of a challenge because, you know, the reproductive system of the female rhinos is very complex and very long. This is the very first time IVF is being done on rhinos. And so it's all of this is very groundbreaking. They haven't yet figured out how to do the embryo transfer to the southern surrogate mum.
3: This is all good news, but science can't yet do everything. The northern white rhinos are still teetering on the brink of extinction. And if anything happens to Najin or Fatu, hope could be extinguished completely.
2: Embryos can be stored, which will give them a chance to explore how they're going to do the embryo transfer. But eggs can not be stored. If anything happens with the two females and they haven't got eggs, then um, they will lose their whole chance of saving the northern white rhinos say for the first two years we have two calves that won't mean that you will have a stable population of northern white rhinos in the next 10 or 15 years or so it's a very long-term project that is going to take nearly around 40 years to just maybe get a, a threshold number of rhinos that we can see as a stable population to bring back the northern white rhinos so it's a long-term project it's a lot of work it's a lot of money and so, so many people question why do you have to use just over ten million U.S. dollars to bring back a species that is just near extinction? But our argument is, from a moral perspective, we have failed these species as we, the contemporary humans, and we really need to do something about it to try the best we can to at least try and save these northern white rhinos. The scientists are very optimistic, even if. We don't succeed saving the northern white rhinos. There's so many lessons that they have learned. As we speak, the Sumatran and the Javan rhinos have their populations less than a hundred left. And so, this is the procedures they can use to save other rhinos that are walking on this road of extinction. It's it's very groundbreaking for the well-being of rhinos in the future. As a caregiver, I'm very excited that this is really happening. You know, we really need that hope that we won't be the last men to look after these northern white rhinos. We're really hoping that we will have young ones and we will announce for people to come for a baby shower. I hope you'll come.
3: The very human instinct to dominate, destroy and conquer nature has led to the extinction of so many species. And the northern white rhino could still be next. But that other human instinct might just be the thing that saves them. The instinct which draws us inexorably towards places we were never meant to be. To push at the boundaries of what's possible, to do more tomorrow than we could ever have imagined today. We're the species that climbed Everest because it was there, went to the moon because it was hard, and descended to the bottom of the deepest ocean just to see what was down there. Many experts think that our species is the first in history to bring about a mass extinction event. But with this spirit, perhaps we'll be the first species to stop one in its tracks. You've been listening to the BBC Earth podcast. Stories were produced by me, Emily Knight, Eliza Lomas and Sam Grist. Sign up to our newsletter at bbcearth.com forward slash newsletter for a dose of animals, nature and science from BBC Earth in your inbox whenever you need it. And join us next week for the final episode of this series when we'll be taking a journey into the senses.
1: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.